Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In today's episode, Father Streitenberger covers paragraphs 422 to 483, Who is Jesus Christ? Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! we begin the section we believe Lord Jesus Christ the only Son of God and then we're going to go through all of that section uh, which is the longest part of the creed so tonight we focus then this question of who is Jesus Christ there are um, three points which we're going to make today three big points or we might Um, split our evening up into three sections. The first one is looking at the titles of Christ, of Jesus, to figure out who he is, what we mean by all of these titles. The second is why the Son of God became flesh, why the incarnation happened, why the Word became flesh. And then finally, to look how Christ is true God and true man. So those are sort of the the three points which the Catechism treats in this section. In paragraphs 422 through 424, there's an intro which just really announces the importance of Christ. That Christ is the center That in the fullness of time and in the fullness of revelation, the Father sent his Son to reveal himself completely, to reveal the Father fully. Those paragraphs, I'm, I'm not going to read them, but they're a nice, beautiful sort of reflection on the centrality of Christ in the faith. That really... The uniqueness of Christianity is our belief that God has become human. He has become one of us. Christ is at the center of the message. It really, Christ really is the good news of the gospel. That God has sent his son to be among us. In paragraph 425, we are reminded that Christ really is at the heart of our Christian faith and what is being handed on. So we think of the deposit of faith as all of these doctrines or dogmas or philosophical and theological answers to questions, but really at the heart of what has been revealed and what is proclaimed is Jesus Christ himself. 425 tells us the transmission of the Christian faith consists primarily in proclaiming Jesus Christ in order to lead others to faith in him. So um, evangelization, the word evangelization, means at its basis the proclamation of a good news, the telling of a good news. Evangelion is the Greek This evangelization, the word, really can be used to describe all that we do in the church. So it describes certainly our outreach to those who have no belief. 
In recent decades, we have heard it with this title, The New, The New Evangelization, to also apply to our outreach to fallen away Catholics or those who perhaps have heard the gospel because they've grown up in the Western world, but not, they don't really practice the faith. But we can also use the word evangelization to describe everything that we do in the church. Our pastoral care, the administration of the sacraments, all of the institutions that we run. In some sense, it is evangelization. And it is in this sense that however we transmit the Christian faith, It consists in proclaiming Jesus Christ and then inviting others to follow him. So we can't just proclaim Christ as if, well, let me tell you about how God became man. The very fact that God became man begs that we have a relationship with him, that we invite this person to respond to this truth. So in all that the church does, in all of our works, in all of our institutions, the heart of it must be somehow the proclaiming of Jesus Christ and with it an invitation that leads others to faith in him. So in 425, we're told that Christ is the center, really, of all that the church does. And then, because this is the Catechism, paragraph 426 through 49, 429, is going to describe how Christ is at catechesis, the center of catechesis, specifically this handing on of the faith. At the heart of catechesis, we find, in essence, a person, the person of Jesus Christ, the only Son from the Father, So, catechesis isn't, again, just the impartation of knowledge, but it's also providing the person access, or we might use a word which Pope Francis uses quite often, an encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. So, in this sense, when we even study intellectually the faith, it becomes the opportunity for an experience, for an encounter with Christ. We somehow, in wrestling with the facts of the faith, with the truths of the faith, we come, we stumble into the presence of the person of Christ. It becomes, in a sense, an opportunity to encounter him. In 428, whoever is called to teach Christ must first seek the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Now, these paragraphs 426 through 429, I think, are especially applicable to um, teachers, both teachers in general, but teachers in Catholic schools and teachers in PSR or RCIA or CCD programs. That for one to teach Christ, one must know Christ. And then, from a loving knowledge of Christ, springs this desire to proclaim him, to evangelize and lead others 
to the yes of faith in Christ Jesus. This then leads up in this treatment of the titles of Christ. There are four titles which are, which are used. And really, I think this section, and I'll show you why I think this section, it points to a very ancient um, pneumatic, not a pneumatic, but a pneumatic device um, to understand Christ as sort of a summary of all that we believe about Christ. And it is the Greek word um, ichthus. Um, ichthus, which is, of course, means fish. So you know all those um, fish symbols. You know, people put them on their bumpers and things like that. Um, so the fish, the word fish, ichthus, was used as, as sort of a device to communicate what we believe about Christ. And each of those letters stand for a title of Christ. And each of those titles convey an important aspect of the mystery of who Jesus Christ is. So the first is this iota, as we say in the hills, but really yoda, which is, of course, because there are no J's, it is Jesus, Jesus. The X is a chi, C-H, from which we get Christ. These two, the theta and the upsilon, it's theoi um, huios, son of God, son of God. And then the last one, which is, I will admit, is a bit of a stretch when we get into the catechism, but it's soter, soter, which means savior. So, from ichthus, Jesus, Christ, Son of God, Savior. Now, we're going to go through each of those titles, at least what the catechism treats. But what I want to do is to flip to the in brief section of this part, paragraphs 452 through 458. Because I think it helps us to understand that these four titles are saying something um, about Christ. Each of them are kind of pointing to these four, what we might say, um, four aspects of who Jesus Christ is that we have to balance. Now, before I do that, so the S, the, the sigma, the soter, is Savior. In the catechism, they don't use Savior, they use Lord. So they kind of mess up this device, but no, they don't mess it up. It's just... 
you know, but we're going we're gonna to make it all fit. But, so, in 452 through 455, in the in brief on this section, it really does a very good job of kind of connecting each of the titles to an aspect of who Jesus Christ is. So, 452, the name Jesus, the first title, the name Jesus means God saves The child born of the Virgin Mary is called Jesus. So, this is his human name. It is a divine name because he's a divine person. But it's the name that he's... And so, Jesus reminds us, this title Jesus, reminds us of his human nature. That he is fully human. Paragraph 453. The title Christ means anointed one, Messiah. Jesus is the Christ, for God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. This title, Christ, indicates two things, really. So there's really five aspects, if you want to. It reminds us that he has a divine mission. That he is anointed by the Holy Spirit, sent by the Father. We talked about the divine missions a couple weeks ago when we talked about the Trinity. That the Son and the, the Spirit are sent by the Father. So the title of being anointed indicates that he has has been sent by the Father. But it also indicates he shares something with the Father. And so this title Christ points to his divine nature. And with it, what we call his divine mission. That he is a mission from the Father. When we go through the section on this title, the connection will be a little clearer, I hope. Son of God, of course, we, uh, in this paragraph, the title Son of God, 454, signifies the unique and eternal relationship of Jesus Christ to God his Father. So this title, Son of God, reveals that Jesus Christ is a divine person. So, Jesus, human nature, Christ, he, is, he has this divine nature, but most especially this divine mission. Son of God, he's the second person of the Trinity. He's a divine person. And then Savior or Lord, as the catechism will, this last one, the title Lord indicates divine sovereign. Lord is used in the Old Testament to apply to God. Adonai, 
which is the nickname for Yahweh. Lord, the title Lord for Christ, we'll give you another Greek word, means he's homoousios, or of the same substance of the of the same divine substance. He is truly God. He shares in the oneness of God. And these are the things that we're balancing then in our understanding of Christ. That he's fully human. He has a human nature. He's Jesus. He also has this divine mission. He has this divine nature. He is Christ. He is the second person of the Trinity, a divine person. He shares fully in the same divine substance as the Father and the Holy Spirit. So now let us flip back to the individual titles. So with that, Ichthus... And these four titles have a summary, really, of who Jesus Christ is. Human and divine with a divine mission. A divine person with a human nature, a divine nature of the same substance of the Father and the Holy Spirit. So the first title, Jesus, of course, it means God saves it is, his, it is his proper name, but it also identifies in some way his earthly mission, his earthly mission, as opposed to his eternal mission, his earthly mission to save the human race and to restore and elevate creation. The name Jesus signifies that the very name of God is present in the person of his Son, made man for the universal and definitive redemption from sins. So that name Jesus, it it communicates to us his human nature, that as a baby he was given this name Jesus. But it also sort of summarizes everything that he's going to do in his life. That he's become incarnate, that he is teaching and establishing the church, that he's going to suffer and die, and that he's going to rise from the dead. Why? To save us, to save the world. This name, as we say, is a divine name because the divine, the divinely revealed name. It is as important as Yahweh. Which is why the church has always had a a special devotion to the name of Jesus. So when we say it, especially at least in a liturgical context, we're supposed to bow our head. Of course, the third commandment, not using the Lord's name in vain, also applies to the name Jesus. The title Christ... The word Christ comes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah, which means anointed. It became this proper name to Jesus 
to signify his mission, his mission. If Jesus indicates the earthly mission of kind of what he is doing in this world, the title Christ indicates this sort of divine eternal mission of being anointed by the Spirit from the Father. Jesus fulfilled the messianic hope of Israel as priest, prophet, and king. In both of those offices, of course, they would be anointed. We ask, when was Jesus Christ anointed? Well, in some sense, as the Son of the Father from all eternity. Certainly, we might say, at the Incarnation, where the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary and he is conceived. But most visibly, we would say, the anointing of Christ happens at his baptism, where he is anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Catechism reference to the importance of baptism as one of these key events where it is revealed his, his messianic mission. This messianic consecration, we're told in 438, reveals his divine mission. That he eternally sent by along with the Holy Spirit. That he has been anointed from the Father by the Holy Spirit. We also see um, this role of him being anointed in some ways also in the transfiguration, where the Father again acknowledges him as his Son, and the glory of the Lord is upon him. The third title, The Only Son of God. We make this distinction, The Only Son of God, because the title, Son of God, was used in the Old Testament in different contexts. So the title, Son of God, was sometimes used to refer to angels. This is especially the case in Daniel. It's also used sometimes to refer to the king. So there are a couple psalms that point to that. And so when we say the only Son of God, of course the only begotten Son of the Father, as a divine title. And we really see this in the accounts of Peter, you know, where the Lord asks Peter, who do people say that I am? And then the Lord says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Son of God. Peter clearly is using the title as that of a divine title. He recognizes that Christ is a divine person. That this is something more than just being a descendant of David. 
and that, that he is something more than an angel. In 444, there are these two points, the baptism of the Lord and the transfiguration, where the Father recognizes Christ as his beloved Son. Beloved Son. And his divinity, his being the Son of God, is revealed in his teaching. So often Jesus will say, I am who am. You know, people will ask him a question and he will say, I am, which is not just, not a, a mere affirmative, you know, like, yes, sir, but he is saying the divine name. He is revealing himself as a divine person. We also see it in his healings and in his miracles, that this is someone divine. And then, of course, most especially in his resurrection and the post-resurrection appearances. And then this title, Lord. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew name Yahweh, which was revealed to Moses, is often rendered Adonai, or in the Greek, Kyrios, Kyrios. The Lord becomes sort of the name for the divinity, for the one God. And so the fact that the early followers of Christ, especially after his resurrection, were, con- were constantly referring to him as Lord, not in the sense like the German dare hair, you know, the Lord, in the, you know, in the sense of mister, but in the sense of a really divine, you know, they fall down on their face, Lord. They're inspired to worship him. It is a recognition that somehow Jesus, of course, centuries to figure out how to explain it, but that somehow Jesus Christ shares in the same divine substance as the Father and the Holy Spirit. When you the Lord for the Lord, it expresses on the one hand a respect, but also a deep trust that he's in control. It also recognizes his divine mystery. Now, a lot of times, um, and this is kind of a, a tangent that was probably more fitting at the beginning of this, but at a lot, a lot of times, so what the catechism proposes at the beginning of this section is that really we should be about Jesus Christ. We should be talking about him all the time. And in some ways, all of our homilies, all of our sermons, all of our teachings need to somehow be about Jesus Christ and enable people to encounter him. But so often, and this is kind of one of my pet peeves in in life, so often when you hear homilies or when you hear um, talks, spiritual talks, Jesus is never mentioned. 
that they will talk in general terms about God. But really, you know, God has taken on this human nature. The second person has taken on our human nature. And he is the fullness of revelation. There's a certain centrality which Christ, um, you know, which we owe Christ, which, which man's. Um, but a lot of times people might avoid using the name of Jesus because you have to constantly bow your heads, you know, if you, every time you say it, um, by just referring to him as Lord. And this was the custom um, in the preconciliar church because liturgically, you know, the priest would have to take off his beretta or you know, do a liturgical action every time the name of Jesus was mentioned. So a lot of times, we would, people would just use Christ or just use Lord um, in order to, you know, to avoid sort of the, the difficulty or the, you know, the complexity that might happen by mentioning the name Jesus frequently. That's, that's, you know, that's legitimate. We might refer to Christ as Lord or we, you know, we frequently when we're talking about him. But I think that's the key, and, and, I, and I hope with both the section on the Trinity and on this section on Christ, is that we're very careful when we're listening um, to homilies, to talks, to what people are saying, to see if they're really talking about Christ or whether they're talking about God in some sort of generic way. The Christian God has revealed himself fully in Jesus Christ. And he really is the one that we should be about. With Christ, of course, is the Father and the Holy Spirit. This is not any sort of, you know attack on the Father or the Holy Spirit, but there is a certain centrality of Christ in what we're about, in what we're doing, in what we're saying, because he is the message, really. Um, It is because of Jesus Christ that we're able to know the Father and the Holy Spirit. But there's another way of talking about God that the way that you hear it does not presume a belief in Jesus Christ or a belief even in the Trinity. And I think it's very common out there. So I guess the challenge is, you know, we embrace this faith, we know this faith, and it helps us not only to speak about Christ, um, but also to listen how others might might be talking about him. So then we go into the next section, um, which deals with specifically why the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh. And this section gives us four explanations for this. And then it leads into really a summary of... Um, sort of the 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 heres and the, the right teachings on Christ, so the catechism gives us four reasons why let me say let me make sure four reasons why 
God became man, why the incarnation was something good and something necessary, not that God, um, we might say, why it was fitting to use um, St. Thomas's um, phrase, phrase when talking about these things, that why is it fitting that God should become flesh in us? So number one, in paragraph 457, the word became flesh for us in order to save us by reconciling us with the Father. And so, of course, we know because we've just covered the fall a couple weeks ago, original sin, we know that things are messed up, seriously messed up. Part of this revelation that has been going on of God revealing himself is to restore this relationship. God becomes flesh, the word becomes flesh, to definitively reconcile us. So it's not enough to send letters from afar or text messages apologizing or an email apologizing. It is most fitting to come in the very flesh to restore a relationship. And especially if that relationship is as bad off as it is between God and the human race, it's even more fitting that it be resolved. You might get away with a text message apology for something small. But if it's something epic, you're going to have to apologize in in the flesh. So that's one reason. Second, 458, word became flesh so that thus we might know God's... God is, is willing to go this far, to humble himself... to take on our human nature, to become one of us. This shows us how great his love is. But also, it's kind of hard for us to understand how an infinite, eternal, spirit, you know, all spirit, non-physical being can love us. It seems, you know... Like how, they, when they say that the universe is so large, all these light years, well, this seems unimaginable. You know, to me, what is a light year? You know, like it's, it almost becomes meaningless because it's so large. But part of the beauty of the incarnation is that now we can experience this infinite love in a very human way. In a human context, there's a face to this love. He uses human gesture, gestures and expressions to communicate this love. This infinite love is now revu- revealed in a, a human kind of way. Number three that the Word became flesh to be our model of holiness. Or we might 
God has become human, teach us how to be human. That the author of human nature has become human in order to teach us. It is like when a father comes to their child to kind of not just give them instructions, but to bend down and actually show them how to do something. And then the fourth reason in 460, the word became flesh to make us partakers of divine nature. So that by being human and sharing in human nature, we might share in divine nature. So God, the divine being, has taken on human nature. So that as we are united to him in our human nature through the physical sacraments, through our union with him, our human nature is lifted up to share in the divine. This is one of the great great messages of the ascension, that Christ, the Son of God, in his human body and his human nature, ascends to the Father, that our human nature is lifted up to be united to the Father. So that by being human, not by, by being angels, but by being human and sharing in human nature, we're able to somehow share in the very life of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That by being human sharing in this human nature which Christ has taken upon himself, we are able by baptism to be adopted sons and daughters of the Father, to share in the very life of the Trinity. And this is why we can say that the incarnation means that creation isn't just restored is actually elevated. So we're real Christian in eternal life are better off than Adam and Eve. So those four reasons for the fittingness of the incarnation. And then in the last section, which is um, somewhat daunting, but we'll go through it. First of all, in 461, there's a nice handy definition of the incarnation. We use this word all the time. Sometimes one's even afraid to use it because we might not understand what it means. But here's a nice definition. The incarnation is the fact that the Son of God assumed a human nature in order to accomplish our salvation in it. Belief in the true incarnation of the Son of God is the distinctive sign of Christian faith.
the unique and altogether singular event of the incarnation of the Son of God. The event, of course, where the incarnation happens is the Annunciation, where the angel Gabriel visits Mary and she conceives by the power of the Holy Spirit. The event of the incarnation. It does not mean that Jesus Christ is part God and part man. He's not like a, you know, what are those centaurs, you know, that are half bulls and half men. Or other things, you know. He is true God and true man. Truly man while remaining truly God. Jesus Christ is true God and true man. And so in the next section, there's um, 465 through um, 469 is sort of a grand sweep of church history in four paragraphs and all of the different heresies. So how people struck out in trying to explain this mystery of how Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. So there is Gnostic docetism, which denies, and it's really one of the earliest heresies, probably the earliest heresy, it denies that Jesus is truly human, that he's somehow just an angel, or that, you know, this human nature is just sort of a, um, a mirage. He doesn't really have a human body or human nature. There is adoptionism, which is the heresy of Paul of Samosata, which says that the Son of God, um, Jesus Christ is a Son of God by, um, by adoption. So Jesus is this man and God just kind of claimed him as his own and then gave him this sort of divine nature. But he's really a human that has been adopted. No, we're adopted, the baptized are adopted by God the Father, um, but not the Son. The Son is begotten of the Father. And then there is Arianism, which denies that the Son and the Father are of the same divine substance, that they are both Lord in the sense of one God, one divine nature, one divine self. Nestorianism, which regarded Christ as a human person joined to the divine person of God's Son. And that um, there is a human person and there's a divine person, but that they're really not united. This is a problem. I think psychology might call it schizophrenia, but um, there are two persons. Well, that's not possible. There's a, there's a real problem there. Another heresy, 467, the Monophysites, affirmed that there was a human nature, but that it had kind of been overwhelmed by Christ's divinity, obliterated even. 
It is at the Ecumenical Council of Chalcedon that the balance is all set. That Jesus Christ is one divine person, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, with a human nature and a divine nature. We use the word hypostasis, hypostasis, to describe that this person, that he is one person. After the Council of Chalcedon in Constantinople, the fifth ecumenical council at Constantinople in 553, it was taught, and it is taught, there is one person, which is our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the Trinity. Thus, everything in Christ's human nature is to be attributed to his divine person as its proper subject. We call this the communication of idioms. The communication of idioms is sort of the fancy theological word. Because one divine person, and we want to emphasize that. I emphasize that because um, there are some people who teach that he's a human person, and that is a heresy. He is a divine person. He is fully human. He has a human nature, but he's a divine person. That's his point of unity. But because Jesus is a divine person, and his human nature and his divine nature are truly united, we can attribute or communicate things about his human nature as if it was about his divinity, even though technically it's really just about his human nature. So, for instance, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, suffered and died for you. This is true. He's a divine person. But his human nature His body is what suffers. And will and human soul suffer. But of course, God in himself can't really suffer. But we're able to say that because he's a divine person. That the Son of God does suffer because he's one person. So it's healthy, it's fine to say that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, this divine person, has suffered and died for you. Jesus Christ is inseparably true God and true man. That's sort of the summary that's given to us in paragraph 469. How is the Son of God man? Well, just to kind of hit on a couple of these things. First of all, we are told that he has a human soul. Second, because he has a human soul, he has a human intellect and a human will. And he also has a human body. So... This one divine person, 
has a body and a soul. A truly human body and a truly human soul. This is part of his human nature. I gotta make lines, don't I? I could flip the page, but we've got a long, long haul ahead of us. So, the body and soul, you know, are those are of his human nature. His soul, like every human soul, has a will and an intellect, an intellect and a will. We all have that. So, Jesus Christ has a human body, a human soul, a human intellect, and a human will. With his divine nature, he also has a divine intellect and a divine will. Now, does he have a divine soul? No, he just has a human soul. Only human souls. God doesn't have a soul. He does have this divine nature, though. But he does have a truly human soul and a human body, a human intellect and a human will. He also has a divine intellect and a divine will. So the catechism is going to show how he is truly human then. He's truly human. First, he's truly human because he has a human soul. The divine word has a human soul. So, when the angel Gabriel visited Mary and she conceived, his body was created, his human body was created, and his human soul was created. So there was this heresy, this heresiarch is one of our words of the night, heresiarch is someone who invents a heresy. Apollinarius of Laodicea said that actually... The divine nature was his soul, that he didn't have a human soul, which is heresy. He wouldn't be truly human if he didn't have a human soul. So he has a human soul. It's a human soul like any others that is rational, which has an intellect, will, In 472, we hear about this human intellect, and actually in 473 as well. This human soul that the Son of God assumed is endowed with a true human knowledge. As such, the knowledge could not in itself be unlimited. It was exercised in the historical conditions of his existence in space and time. So, in his soul, he has... And like any other human intellect, it grows in knowledge over time. But part of the problem is, is of course, Christ is not affected by original sin and the effects of the fall. And his human intellect with his human soul is united to his divine nature. This gives him a certain clarity in his human knowledge that we don't have. 
He does grow in knowledge like we do, but he is in in a state of grace, a higher state of grace than any of us, really, which gives his intellect a, a greater clarity. And this is um, 473. But at the same time, this truly human knowledge of God's Son expressed the divine life of his person. Because he is one divine person, his human body and soul, intellect and will, are united to the divine nature. Therefore, there's a special grace We might call it a clarity, but nonetheless, it's a special union. Theologians will use this phrase, but this is not in the catechism, which is probably used either, you know, the catechism uses a lot of fancy phrases, but it may avoid this for a reason. The grace of the hypostatic union, theologians would call this. So because his human nature and his divine nature, he has a special grace, which means his intellect is much more keener and powerful and more insightful than the Because of that grace... The son of, of the son in does have this also this this divine knowledge as well. So he has this divine intellect. But we hear in the scriptures that there are some things which he says he doesn't know. The catechism explains this. Um, so yes, he does have this divine intellect. But what he admitted to not knowing in this area, he elsewhere declared himself not sent to reveal. So this is a great mystery. He does have this divine intellect. He knows who he is. He knows the Father. He knows all of these divine truths. But there are some things which he says he does not know, which would be more applicable to his divine intellect. So the question often is, is what's his, what does he know by his human intellect and what does he know by his divine intellect? Well, he, use, he knows his human intellect, those things which a human intellect should know or grow in. The things that only the divine intellect would know, that's what is in his divine knowledge. So the Hebrew alphabet is something which his human intellect could know or ought to know. And so that's what was, that's how he came to know the Hebrew alphabet. People's souls or his divine mission, these kind of things, divine intellect. But there are things which he says he does not know, and it's because he's not sent to reveal those things. So the big thing is, of course, the end of the world. When does the end of the world going to come? And he says that, I don't know, but in the sense of I'm not here to reveal. 
or perhaps none of your business. You know, might be how one how we would say that. He says it much nicer than I do. He also, as we said, he has a human will and a divine will. A human will and a divine will. We talked about that divine will when we talked about the problem of evil. He shares in that divine will the Father and the Holy Spirit. Because he's in this state of grace, his human will is always obedient as all human wills ought to be to the divine will. And so he does not do anything in contrary to the divine will. They act in symphony together, in unison. To close, 476 and 477, Jesus had a true human body, which means he can be depicted in art. God has made himself visible. He took on a body. That's why we have statues and icons and stained glass windows and all. Because God took on a human body. He had a face. He had dimensions. So his little picked him in art. And then finally, 478, which we'll, I'll just conclude by reading. He also had a heart. Jesus knew and loved us each and all during his life, his agony and his passion, and gave himself up for each one of us. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. He has loved us all with a human heart. For this reason, the sacred heart of Jesus, pierced by our sins for our salvation, is quite rightly considered the chief sign and symbol of that love with with which the divine Redeemer continually loves and the, the eternal Father and all human beings without exception. Really, the message of the Incarnation, and I think a, a fair summary I gave you, Ichthus, the fish, but another fair summary of all that we believe about Jesus Christ is the sacred heart. The idea that in a human heart, from a human heart, God loves us with an infinite divine love. In the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it, or share it with a friend, please visit com. go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless, and have a great day.